ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Hello and welcome to this extended interview with Lee John, the Imagination frontman. Now, as the main man of Imagination, Lee enjoyed hits in 28 countries with Flashback, Body Talk and Just an Illusion. And in this interview, he talks about a documentary that he's been making about black British music, which is also called Flashback. His life during 80s Britain, his musical influences, the time as a child that he spent in New York and his first appearance on Top of the Pops. It's a revealing, open and sometimes moving interview, and if you live through the 80s and 90s, you'll recognise some parallels to your own life. And I started by interviewing Lee about his parents. Uh, There was always music in the house. They came from St Lucia, and so therefore we would listen to the music of the day, Calypso, Jim Reeves, Nat King Cole, in any Black Caribbean house in the 60s in the UK, that's what they'd be listening to. But my sister was a big influence because she was listening to um, Blue Beat and Scar and Motown and Stax, definitely Stax. And she was into, she liked the Rolling Stones more than she liked the Beatles because she thought they were more edgy. And I remember when I was very, very young, my mom bought me this record I heard on the radio and it was um, uh, You Don't Know by Helen Shapiro. And I just say Helen Spatero, you know, you know, and I just love that. Well, my love, I love you so, but you don't know, you don't know how much I feel. Da, 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 da. The melody was in my brain, and um, it stayed. That was one of the first melodic musical references. But then I do remember um, that in school, when I was in primary school, another piece of music that got into my brain was Rumsey Korsakoff's Shahrazad which has stayed with me for a long time. Um, and I didn't even realize what the music was until, you know, the, the last 30 years, <laughs> I discovered it, rediscovered it. And so that was interesting. So at a very early age, it was very diverse. And then um, singing She Loves You and all that kind of stuff. But when I actually started to get into to music, um, one of the first records I actually bought by that time I'd, I'd moved to the States, my friends had split, moved to the States. And um, on the corner of, of where we lived was a record shop. So I'd listened to such diverse soul R&B music. You know, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't even in my teens yet. And uh, I bought My People Hold On album by Eddie Kendricks. And at that time, Lady Sings the Blues, the first version of that with Diana Ross came out. And, um, I'd gone to see the film and was so impressed by the film. I'm, I want to know who this Billie Holiday was. So I read the book 
And then every reference in the book, I started to buy the music of these people like Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Satchmo, um, you know, Josephine Baker. I, I wanted to know all of these people, who they were. And uh, I just soaked it all up. And then at that time, we, you know, I started to listen to people like Isaac Hayes, Hot Bodied Soul, you know, um, <clears throat> this is before the theme, theme from Shaft came out. And then there were the, the vocal groups that were about. Obviously, everybody was into the Jackson 5 because you were a kid. My cousins were into that, you know, the Love You Save. And I used to love the Maybe Tomorrow album and, and, and Never Can Say Goodbye. But then I also liked things like, um, is it Laura Lee I listened to? And the, is it the, the Presidents? And one of the local groups, very influential for me in, in a sense, um, just before I came back to the UK, it was called, a group called Black Ivory. And they had a, a song called um, Don't Turn Around. Don't turn around. Da, 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 da. It was a very falsetto type sound. And uh, they had another track called You and I Have an Understanding, which was a beautiful, beautiful song. And um, at that time, all the, it was a time of the Temptations and all these other groups, the Shy Lights, the Stylistics. Um, but I was mainly influenced, I think, by Motown, because I saw something that I could be. I, would, I could be a four top, I could be a Supreme, I could be a Jackson 5, I could be a, I could be all of these people all in one person, because the fact is they were doing it and they put it on such a heavier stage. Um, but then I also loved people like Aretha Franklin, you know, I love the gospel side of stuff. And one of my favorite all time versions of You're Only To Get By was by Aretha. And I gravitated to, always wanted to know who wrote the songs. So I found out it was Ashlyn Simpson. So then that connects me with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And, I, and then I became a fan of Ashlyn Simpson at a very early age. I bought all their albums um, and till the point where, for me, the favorite album they did was Stay Free, Nobody Knows. This is like the late 70s into the 80s. And, you know, I just loved how they combined being in the soul pop into with the element of gospel with it. <clears throat> and then, you know, I loved all the divas and stuff like that, but one of my favorites was Natalie Cole. And I got to meet her in the mid seventies. I was writing for a magazine, not magazine, it was the Caribbean Times. And um, a friend of mine and myself, we managed to go to Capitol Records, which was EMI in London. And um, this, this lady, Debbie Bennett, who was always involved in press and promotions, she managed to give us a white label of the very first Natalie Cole album, and which has some wonderful songs. So, you know, I was just a fan from then on, you know, and she had so many hits. And, she, and I think about Natalie, she was so diverse with her style of music. She did jazz, blues, soul, gospel, pop. And that's what I thought for myself. That's where I want to be. You know, I want to be able to be very diverse in the things that I do. So even when I formed imagination, it was, that was my main thing I really wanted to do. Can but, I take you back just a second though, before we get yeah. to that area? Because the one thing that really fascinated me in a way, because I come from a family of, of parents that also split, is that mm. you lived with your father, which is mm. pretty mm. unusual. Um, what was the relationship with your parents? And do you think the part, because I think for me, part of my drive in life came from want needing my father to love me in some way mm, you know mm, what i mean i always felt that my father didn't love me and i think he didn't really mm. um, 
there's lots of you probably say that and, mm. uh, and and i think there was a drive and i just wondered because whenever you, you know whenever i talk to really famous people there's they have mm. this drive in their life to achieve something and particularly early on and that drive comes from an early age and i just wondered if you'd ever analyzed where your drives oh, yes. may have come from well my mum and my sister were very strong influences. My mum's always been working in the community, the black community in the UK. And she's, you know, she's an MBE, she worked half her life. And my sister was also involved in, in arts to, the, to a degree. And when she went back to St. Lucia, she was in, involved in charity. And I grew up in a household where you couldn't be lazy. You, you know, you can just sit down and say, okay, you know, when I left school, that's it. You know, even though if I wanted to be a singer, I still had to be doing something, do a job, and then, and, you know, in the nights you could still sing, you could do this and that. So, um, but prior to that, when my father took me to America, he actually didn't tell my mother. So he literally, um, they split by that time, and he kind of um, uh, took me on this long voyage on the, the SS France, the longest ship in the world at that time, took me to America. And we were on it for like two weeks. In those days, they took a long time to get to across the ocean. And my mother had no idea where I was until she got a postcard. So there was always that longing that, you know, I want to see my mom, you know, where is she? You know, and, and, and with that, with the memory of, of what I loved of England and stuff, there was a smell, there was a sense, there was colors. And when I went to New York, <clears throat> it, was, it was like going into Disneyland. It was completely different. Um, as a, as a, a young black guy coming from the UK, I just saw so much of people of me. I saw my own reflection. I saw it in, in so many different ways. And I thought I could do, I could do, I could probably do da 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 da. To the point I got signed to a, la a label that my father's wife um, pushed me to go into, but my father didn't know. And, uh, and I won the audition and then I recorded a few demos when I was very, very, very young. Um, and, you know, I, I remember singing for them, was it Close to You or something like that? And Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. For some reason, I, I love that song. And um, that's how diverse the radio was and stuff. <clears throat> and, but when you talk about my father, he came from a background where they didn't show that affection to their children when they were growing up when I was younger yeah but as we grew up he was like um he just expected me to to win the swimming um meet you know um I joined track uh, school you know expected me to get you know he just expected it you know but I didn't feel like if like um I was always trying to prove myself and to the point where there was a moment when imagination became successful when I came back to America after coming back to the UK and he turned and he said to me um which was very very it cut me in two was that um oh, if I didn't send you back to England maybe none of this would have happened instead of saying wow son you've done really well look at you da 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 and afterwards and uh, right from that moment on I thought I don't need you I'm, I'm big, bigger and badder and better and I don't need you. I can get on and do it myself. You know, you've provided me a platform of birth, but I can now move on and do my own thing. And even before he passed away, which he passed away in 2000, he was very much still thinking that what I did was a, a job, but the real job was come back to St. Lucia, look after the land, look after the property. That's where you should be, you know, should be doing. But when he passed away in his belongings, I found all my albums. 
wow. And it was like, you know, you know, and he, but he'd been talking to other people about me. That was the situation, but he would never do it to my, I think to my face, but I think he was brought up in that Victorian sort of, you know, this English tradition, um, which was passed down to the Caribbean of not really praising your children. You know, a lot of them, you, you know, they don't show their perfectionists, maybe, because, I mean, I think when you listen to your voice and when you listen to your music, it is very much of perfection. It's very much, you know, like you have this feeling, wow, he's, he's really going for it here completely. And it's funny because I read about Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, who was an absolute perfectionist in arranging and everything, that his father never, ever told him that he was any good at everything, anything. And so he spent mm. his whole life looking for that confirmation. And it's mm. sort of a similar confirmation. I wonder if that sort of led you to, to actually say, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove. There was a moment, obviously, where you stopped doing that, where you stopped saying... Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I still do, in a sense, in myself. I still try and be a perfectionist. I still try and be the best of what I do. I still think I'm still learning, you know, and that's what led me to technology and stuff like that. And I thought... God, I don't know as much as them. I need to learn a little bit more. I need to learn a little bit more. I, need, I don't know those dance steps so well. Maybe need to do that. I can't do that anymore. You know, I'm older now, so I can't do this. So, all right, I need to do that. But I've always felt that I needed to be the best of what I do. And um, so like with all the, the Imagination songs, Lee Johnson, I did, I did all my backgrounds, all my harmonies. You know, Ashley would come in on a few bits. Um, but mainly... I remember meeting Freddie Mercury and he was just stunned and astounded that how I did my arrangement. So he was saying he was, because he had to pay all the chords to do the vocals, but I just did it all in my head. You know, I'd be in the studio and I'd go, we'd, we'd be talking and I'd do the harmony, they'd do the harmony. There. And, you know, and I was always very, very quick. Like our first album was done like maybe two, three weeks, you know, and writing and I'd written songs from before, which we put in there. So I always had this aptitude of, um, and I loved harmonies. And one thing I can always say, I never thought I was good enough. That's one of the things I always, because prior to imagination, I was, I was gigging, I was doing working men's clubs, uh, the Caribbean clubs, the bingo halls, pubs. It was fantastic. The great audiences. It was a great training ground. And now I was also in the studio doing background vocals for this one and then doing a few demos here. And they were never quite right. I'd go to this A&R guy and say, what do you think? What do you think? I said, Lee, it's, it's okay. You're getting there. You're getting there. I was never quite getting there until I did this demo with um, Trevor Horn. And he had hired me and another girl called Sonia Jones. I don't know if you know Sonia Jones. Sonia Jones is, was one of the main big session singers back in the 80s and 90s. She, she did loads of things, but she's very well known that people don't even realize it's her <clears throat> imitating a Shirley Bassey-esque sound on the soundtrack of Life of Brian. She's the one that says, Brian, baby, call Brian. And uh, Little Welsh Girl, and we were starting together doing our sessions, and it was really cool, and we did a track called Cuddle Up and Hold Me Tight for Trevor Horn for Eurovision. We weren't going to sing it. It was somebody else going to do it. And I did one called Taste the Wine or something. Anyway, he liked the tone of my voice. He kept saying I sounded like a young Johnny Mathis, which I thought, oh, my God, no, Johnny Mathis. That's my mum. That's, you know, oh, God. I mean, I grew to love Johnny Mathis's sound as I grew older. But then I thought, oh, my God. And the second person who said I sound like Johnny Mathis was Diana Ross. We were doing a tour and somebody said, Oh, I was with Diana Ross and she heard you reckon. She says, you sound like Johnny Mathis. I'm like, ah, you know. But it was that situation. At least I was being compared to a legend. So, you know, 
But um, the Trevor Horn scenario got me into the studio with him and he was working with, I think, Jeff Downs from Yes, I think, Yes, I think, and before Buggles. And um, we were in a studio in Camden Town, if I recollect, and we did a, a couple demos, one called Stand Up and ja Dance, Dance, and one called Dr. John, which is, you know, I Got the Medicine, which is very pseudo disco, but it was like, um, it wasn't very good. It was very, we were experimenting a lot. Um, and then I didn't like what I did because um, it didn't sound right. So I redid the whole vocal again and called it It's My Life, changed it. That's when I knew you could always change the version of the song and people wouldn't know. And, um, <clears throat> and then he called me back and said, look, I've got this other song. I want you to try it out. Um, maybe you can add in something to it. So I heard it and it was this big production. And I thought, bloody hell, this is really cool. And at that time, he was, I think he was going out with Tina Charles. Um, and so she was, um, I, I think she's on the song a little bit. It's called Got To Be Good. And it just had all this production. This is like early Trevor Horn. And um, it, was, it, was, it was so visual when you hear the song, the bass and everything like that. And then um, I forgot about it and put it, you know, put it aside. And then he grew, he got big. I think that's 7980 with the Buggles, Video Kill Radio started yeah. blew up. And um, so somehow or the other, somebody recommended me to go to R&B Records. It wasn't R&B at the time, it was Red Bus Records. And Morgan Khan, who'd been a, he was doing a bit of everything, DJing and, and promoting records for PRT distributors in, in, um, in Marvel Arch in London. Um, I, he was crazy. I thought I was wild, but he was crazy. He was like, man, I want to get this. He played me all these records and said, you know, I want a track like this, da, 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 and played me all these music. And um, they're all from America. So then I said, you know what? I may have a song for you. So I brought the cassette down, left, left it with him. He called me back in a few days and said, I want, I want this song. I want this to be the first song on our label. You know, it was supposed to be a Lee John record. There was no imagination. So um, I said, that was oh, Body Talk, was it? Was that? No, this oh, was right. um, Got To Be Good. Oh, okay. Just, mm. to, just to go back to a couple of things, because I don't want to jump too far ahead. The, when you talk about the working man clubs and actually like having to do what people like Elton John did, which is he did mm. it in the 70s, which was learn his craft by mm. endlessly playing clubs. Um, and you did the same. And what's interesting about people like you is that there's a moment where it all comes together. There's a moment like, I don't know if you've ever seen Michael Jackson at the 25th anniversary of Motown and yes, yes. Michael Jackson does the moonwalk and he's Michael Jackson finally. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's he's, a he's a yeah. yeah. Adele at the Brit Awards when she did Someone mm. Like You and, and, and you just feel that moment and you go, wow, that's, everything's come together at this time. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah. It, suddenly it works. What, do, what did you learn from those clubs, do you think, that really added to becoming Lee John of Imagination? I learned about the audience. I was with the Sun Valley Serenaders uh, at the George Canning Pub on a Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday night. And then in the rest of the week, I was a singing waiter, singing um, songs from the West End, where the waiters of Encore, we sing and dance, we'll give you more than any other stuff in town with Gary Shell and 
a singer called an actress called Tammy Jacobs and Sally Temple and um, Steve Armley. I'd love to track these guys down now. I really would. And we had a, 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 a we were on the front pages, I think, or, yeah, of the second second page of the Evening Standard of this place called Encore. So I was doing that, and then dash away at at, at in no, I I do the George Canning pub between seven and ten rush down to Brixton, dash to Encore, change up and get ready to do the midnight show. So what did and you learn from the audience then? What was it specifically? Learning from the audience was that don't be afraid of them, number one. And also, if you are yourself, they will embrace you. And also how to interpret different songs, because I was singing everybody else's songs. I was doing reggae, I was doing calypso, I was doing uh, uh, the songs of the day. Um, and until I started writing my, I was always writing my own material. But um, I mean, for example, the bingo halls were the greatest audiences because you did three little spots and I loved it. And you know, you get the old ladies coming up and giving you, hello love, would you like a drink, hello? You know, and, oh, here's a little fiver. And you know, and um, if my mates came to see me, they'd drink up all my, my, my savings, all my um, earnings, you know, because uh, they'd say, oh, put it, on his, put it on his tab. But it was like, those bingo halls had like sometimes like 2,000 people because they were old theatres. And so it was like, wow. So I learned how to experiment. I learned about how to, you know, how to experiment with my, my the way I dressed, um, how I threw my voice. I learned um, to, to just the communication and what, how you, you knew when you were singing, like I was saying, daddy's home, how to melt someone's heart you know, by singing that song and how to do it and just capture someone, someone will go, ah. Oh, tell me, that how, how, how do you melt someone's heart? <laughs> yeah, when you sing that song, when you sing Daddy's Home, it's gonna melt someone's song. Cause you're gonna be, <laughs> oh, my love. It's the melodies, you know, it's the melodies. Of, it's, it's really hard nowadays because some of the songs you hear nowadays are so electronic and sound like computer games with, with vocals on top of it that you don't, they forget that it, the, the strongest songs that hit you, even like Body Talk, there's a melody, you know, and you can remember those melodies that stay with you forever, those classic songs. And, and that was the thing, um, because I was also doing, um, uh, I, was, I was going to uh, Anna Shear's acting school. I was doing stuff like that and trying to, I wanted to be the best of what I did. So I was trying to really, you know, make sure my craft, I knew every area you know, um, and I even did, uh, I got Panto, but not Panto, but like a theater thing. I played Brer and Nancy, the Spider-Man. And, um, <clears throat> and that was with, actually the musical director was um, Chris Cameron, who was the, uh, who became one of the main musical directors for George Michael. Um, at one point I was in three groups. At one point, yeah, I was doing Fizz, who was a jazz funk group, um, Sun Valley Serenaders and something i can't remember who the other ones but with fizz we were doing all these college and university gigs and they were like young guys and um myself by this time i had ashley uh, on board playing bass and um we did the casio college and george michael's band um i can't remember the name they were supporting us so i thought wow i'm big time now you know supporting us and um i remember andrew ridgely and i think dave David Austin, I think, were, were, you know, we were all backstage and stuff like that. And, but by this time I was very seasoned. I thought I was quite seasoned because I'd done encore, I'd done all these gigs. I was really, I had this professional 
thing. I knew where the next step was going to go, you know, and I knew what was not me by that time. And um, I always wanted to prove that I was a live artist. Even now, today, you know, it's, it's just about getting on the stage and just delivering. We just want to take you back to, to what you said about America. And I find that really interesting that you said it was the first time that you were somewhere where you had this mirror to you. So there were these black groups out there. And so you could see um, people doing something that you wanted oh. to do, as opposed, I presume, not completely, but I would have, think, would have thought that the perspectives for a black person of, you know, of our age back then, mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't easy. No, I mean, um, no, because basically, you know, I, I was lucky. My primary school at Gillespie was multiracial and it was very mixed. So you had Greeks, Turks, Asians, you know, everyone. It was, and people from different Caribbean and Finsbury Park. It's one of the first really big multiracial schools. And I went back to that recent, not a couple of years ago to, and saw my ex teacher. And she told me how, you know, it was in the papers, how multiracial it was, the community was. But at the same time, there weren't black shop owners, to be honest with you, there weren't black teachers. Um, it was just people of power weren't in, you didn't, I didn't see myself in that reflection. And there were very, very few black artists at the time, unless you saw them doing um, Calypso or Scar, um, that sort of genre. But the genre I liked in particular was Soul, always was, was from America. So when I landed in America, all of a sudden, it was like, wow, the Jackson Five had broken by the time I got there. And my cousins were saying, you don't know the Jackson Five? I mean, I got there by the time I Want You Back came out. By the time I got there, it was The Love You Save. So they were like into, stop, stop, baby, save me. It was all that, you know. So it was very um, unusual because you had the Jackson Five, but then you had groups like War, who I loved. That became one of my main groups that I really loved, Eric Burden's War. Um, and then at the same time I was in America, there was the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And the month before that, I think, was Martin Luther King. So it was a very heavy racial time. And the Black Panthers, I remember on each corner, you had these Shabazz um, bean pie places. And, and they had these um, shops that would have joysticks and posters. And it was very, you know, I'm Black and I'm proud. And it, you felt this kind of, hey, you know, something's really... It was it was a, a, a proud moment to be and see history changing. And then, bam, Isaac Hayes wins the Academy Award. Bam, you've got um, Diane Carroll on TV with Julia. Bam, you've got Flip Wilson with his TV show, comedy show. Um, Melbourne Moore and Clifton Webb had a summer special, you know, and it, everything was notable. Why I know the names is because they were so relevant. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, everybody in the school talking about the fight of the season, you know, the Temptations dance routines. We all wanted to, to look like and be the Temptation because they were slick and they were classy, you know. So it was like, and I was still very young. So it was, it was so diverse. And then... You know, you have the jazz musicians like Miles Davis and stuff really freaking out and Herbie Hancock and stuff. I mean, but then, I mean, I got into a lot of the instrumental music because I was always a clubber when, by the time I came back here and got into the whole club scene, the whole, you know, UK black club, soul and reggae, you know, those two sides. I was part of all of that. And, um, but in America, it was all there. 
And when I came back, it was like cold soup. You know, I was watching Slade and Sweet and Gene Genie and I thought, what the hell is this? And, and, and was it Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap? That just drove me absolutely bananas. I thought, and I was still in school, but the, and the records that I had were really heavy. So, you know, I had, um, I remember I brought with me the Midnight Movers and Follow the Wind, and it was a really heavy track. And, um, and I, of course, my Eddie Kendrick's album, which had Girl, You Need a Change of Mind, which is like a classic floor filler. But it was um, so diverse. It was so you so, found, so you found that music again only in black clubs. In oh, yeah. In, on, and import, import, you go to Contempo, which was um, in Hanway Place, Hanway Street, in, in, in just off Oxford Street. Or we go to One Stop, which was, uh, which not a lot of people even remembered, which was like, I think we used, it was classical, but then all of a sudden they started to have a section where they'd have jazz, funk and soul. And you can go into a little booth and sit down and listen to the record. And I had my, remember I always had a cassette tape recorder. Everybody knew me, had no, I'd have an, a Panasonic cassette tape recorder and I'd tape some of the tracks that I was listening to. Or I'd go to Cheapo Cheapo in, in, uh, in Rupert Street and you get the same album there, but cheaper, like instead of 15 pounds for two pounds. And, you know, but I was an avid record buyer, you know, because I just loved the music. And then while at school, when I came back from the States, um, I was just wanted to know what's going on. And my cousin took me to like my first blues in, um, called Bluesville actually, it was in, in Turnpike Lane. And it was heavy dub, heavy reggae, which was cool. Wall to wall dreadlocks. And, you know, we, was, we were lying and saying, oh, we're going to the pictures, the cinema. But we weren't, we were going to this club. And I'd go there for a while and I thought, you know what, this is okay, but they'd only play one soul record. I can't, I couldn't dance. It was always very, very dark. And and so therefore, I don't know who it was. It was somebody said, oh, you've got to come down to this club on a, um, on a Friday uh, lunchtime. I said, lunchtime? God, we were at school. But normally on a Friday lunchtime, they'd have a half day. So you could go home on the, in the fifth year, I think it was. And we discovered Crackers, where George Powell was playing and Mark Roman, the DJs. And I saw like-minded people there. Also people that then went into groups like like the World, Central Line and Lynx. Everybody used to go down to Crackers. And it became, there were people there like Trevor, Trevor, um, Trevor Shakes, who was one of the top dancers, and Leon Herbert, who became a big actor and dancer. And he's actually doing a documentary on dancing of that period and we just followed them and we became a whole posse and we went to bird's nest waterloo and paddington and west hampstead and charlie browns and which was in turnpike lane because they didn't really allow a lot of the black guys who were in posses to go into central london they if you were older there was um clubs like columbo's and um mr b's um Oh, Q Club, which is more, in actual fact, um, Q Club, later on in my life, when we started to gig, we did gigs in Q Club. Like I saw Eddie Grant and Eddie Grant, you know, um, congratulated me and said, you know, you managed to hold the audience. This is before imagination again. So, and all of what I've just talked about was pre-imagination. So it was, um, as far as I could remember, there's always been, a musical thing about me and what, what it was, everybody used to say, and even yesterday I spoke to Leon Herb and he said, every time he thought he thinks of me, he thinks of when he's seen me, I was always singing. I was always, sing I was always 
singing and, 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 and screaming at the top of my voice or the echo in the underground, <clears throat> you know. And um, it was just trying to prove yourself, trying to be, you know, I thought, I'm not as good as that person. I'm going to try and be as good as that and refine it. And will I get there, you know? So how did um, that all come around? How did that actual start with when you went into EMI and you did an impromptu uh, oh, that was way before that. That well, was that was way before. That was years before. I mean, when we went into when I went into EMI, it was, I became a duo while I was still at school, um, and that that was really I think the start of my career in say recording. We went in it was um, mid seventies, and um, a good friend of mine, Ross Fraser, who's not with us now. Well, he's he's passed. You know, God bless him. He's very fondly missed. And he was very much into Motown, the Jackson 5, Diana Ross and everything. So we're doing all our dancing machine and we started to do routines and stuff and started writing. So he, but he wanted everything fast. He wanted everything fast and quick. But we were very determined because we ended up in some places. When I think back, how did we get there? I remember we went down to, um, we, we had a list of all these different studios. And we went to um, Eddie Grant's studio in Els Ballston Road in South Newington, and he gave us advice. And at that time, there was four of us in the group. There was going to be, yeah, there was going to be, there was four of us, but the others were not really serious. And um, then we went down to Eddie Grant's record company in Tin Pan Alley, and we saw all these studio, all these people, and you know, found names and other. And then. I remember we found ourselves at Island Records when it was just starting out in Hammersmith to the point where they were still building things. And um, we, we, we just wanted to do, um, we had all our songs, not with any music, just a cappella with the songs. And um, they said, look, you've got something going, but you know, you know, the normal thing, come back, come back. And then, we still determined again, so we went to EMI and we were in the reception and we looked up and I thought, God, this is the picture where the Beatles were, you know. And so we went into the reception and, and no lie, it was like something out of an MGM film. We go to the reception, sitting there, and this guy um, is, is there watching us, he's got his glasses on, he's got all this thing, and I'm saying, I bet he's a manager, I bet he's a manager. You know, you know this, that must so speak to him. So, yeah, so we just went straight and said like, um, do you manage? He says, yes, I manage a group. Da, 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 da. He turned out to be, his name was Roy Fisher, and he managed the Spiders of Mars, which is David Bowie's backing band. And they had just got this big deal with EMI, and he has his record label, which is, which is going to be connected to EMI. He, he said to us, well, what do you do? So right in the reception, front of, reception in front of everybody, we just sang and danced in front of everybody. Our songs we made up. You know, so everybody was like clapping and stuff like that. And he was like, okay, you know, I like you guys. You know, really come to my, um, to, to, to my office in Wimpole Street. So we went to his office in Wimpole Street and he said, like, I'd like to do a deal with you, but you're underage. So your parents have to sign. So um, they went to my mom and hit, uh, Russell's mom and dad and stuff. And we signed and stuff like that. Went in the studio. Um, we wrote one song called One Life to Live, and the other song was written by Dennis Bond, it was called Get Up, Part One, Part Two, um, which was... But the, the funny thing about it was my memories were we went down, it was in South Milton Street, Mayfair Studio, Mayfair Studio was on the left-hand side, 
there was a place called was it Rockies or something, and uh, oh, they had the I, when I used to eat meat, they had these big hamburgers and rock and and Knickerbocker glories, and and we were going to the studio to sing, and we we're eating all this food, and then we went to the because <laughs> Ross was like, oh my god, how am I going to sing these notes? When the studio, <laughs> I know exactly, um, and. There were live musicians there. We had Thunder Thighs, the backing singers, and they sang on Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. And we had Phil Chang, who I think he played for Rod Stewart. Um, and Del Newman produced it. Del Newman was a big producer and arranger for Diane Ross, for McCartney, loads and loads of people. Um, but we didn't know how big they were at the time. I just, afterwards, I had to do all my research, but I remembered all the names. <clears throat> That was one thing. I always used to look on every album cover to see who did what. So I'd always pick up on the name. Russell wasn't always so much into that, but I was always into that. And anyhow, um, I think we recorded the record. The um, record company tried to put it out or something happened and they changed names and it became word of mouth. And then they went back in the studio and it became a shambles. It would do, nothing happened. I thought we, why I say to people, I think we got to number two in Finsbury Park. <laughs> and, but it was a wonderful experience. I didn't find it negative because from it, I was learning how to record my voice in the studio, um, do harmonies. Um, I got my own tape machine and stuff like that. So I started to experiment a lot at home. You know, I had a TIAC thing. And, um, so Akai, so it's an Akai thing I had. So um, I was learning, trying to learn my craft. And that to me was so important. Russell was more into how much we're going to get, you know, do this and the other. And, and we found ourselves in so many wonderful experiences, watching so many people, you know, um, we got to do interviews when we were that summer at West Indian World. And we interviewed the brothers Johnson, so of all people. We managed to sneak into the Inn on the Park Hotel and interviewed Diana Ross in the lift, coming down in the lift. We got to see Doris Troy, and then she asked us to come on stage with her to dance. Doris, at the Rainbow Theater with Madeline Bell. So who I have, who's now a good friend. There's so many little stories that led up before imagination. So by the time I did the, um, the, um, the, what's his name again? Um, Got To Be Good, the track with um, um, Trevor Horn. Um, I had had these wonderful learning experiences, all diverse, all different, all very colorful. Um, I was even, I, I, the other day I even forgot, and I said to somebody, I, um, after Marcel left, Marcel King left, uh, left Sweet Sensation, I was offered the job to be the lead singer of Sweet Sensation. You know, but I turned it down because I'd seen them at the Lyceum and I thought, oh, great. And I thought, I don't want to replace, you know. And I was very much into, I'd studied the industry by then. And I knew a little bit about with groups where they were going, where they weren't going. I mean, I ended up doing a lot of sessions with um, um, an American American um, session musician so we worked with the Belvolettes and Delphonics and Chairman of the Board the third or fourth member or who, who formed their own version of it so I was I was always the main backing vocals for each of these groups and we go to all the army bases and it was great it was fantastic so it gave me a lot of experience and also 
I, I, you know, you, you actually know what you want to do next. So the next step going into the frying pan was when I went to R&B and took Got To Be Good. And um, they took the master tape of the track, sent it to America and lost it. It got lost. This is supposed to be my first record coming out, got lost. And this is all the big hoopla, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. So I didn't trust them. So they thought, oh my God, you know, we've got this artist here and, you know, what are we going to do? So the next thing um, was I met Tony Swain because um, Ellis Elias, one of the directors, had said, um, I've got a tape and, you, and I think this, you could write something. I like your writing. Um, this could be something you could write on. So I thought, okay. Mm. Now, another reason why... I didn't really trust the record company was spinning back two years before I was in Wardour Street and I went to a company there with some of my demos and they liked me then. Um, I met Manny, the brother of Ellis, and he wanted me to sing a track which they gave to Kelly Marie, who became a number one hit. But the track they played was something Stranger or something of the other and Paradise or something like that. I remember it really well. And Manny doesn't even remember, but he met me then. But I wasn't too sure because they had Jesse Green, who did Nice and Slow, and that was a hit. But I didn't see a lot of artists like myself. I, didn't, I wasn't too sure. And anyway, I went off doing something else and forgot. I think became Singing Waiters, to be honest with you. And then I, I thought, forgot about that. I give it a break. But then what happened was, going forward, um, I got the cassette that uh, Ellis Elias had given me with the music that Tony Swain had put on it and I listened to it and I thought, this is interesting. And I started to write some lyrics and a melody and I uh, used one of my cassette machines and another machine and started overdubbing my voice and stuff. And um, I said to um, Morgan, I want to come into the studio, I've got a song. And uh, he said, which one? I said, the song that Tony's given me. So I said, okay, you know, you've got the time. I said, well, I'm gonna bring a friend of mine in it with me because, you know, so you guys have messed me up already once and I'm not gonna mess about, you know. So I thought, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna form a group. So therefore, if the group flops, it's not gonna screw up my solo career. And that's, that's how cool. really, that's how imagination really started. And so therefore I called Ashley in and we would, because I was into Ashford Simpson so heavily, I said, let's try and do like an Ashford Simpson sort of style on, on this track, which I now became, which became Body Talk, which is late 80 when I wrote it. And then we recorded it. We rehearsed and rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. We didn't record the, the, the vocal straight away in the studio. Um, Tony and, and Morgan were like, wow, this sounds really, really cool. But I wasn't recording. I was just singing over the track and doing all the backgrounds and ideas and stuff. And they said, look, could you record something? So I thought, all right, yeah, we hadn't signed anything. So I was, that's why I was like thinking, well, we haven't signed a deal yet. Why am I going to record it? You know, I was thinking the business side. Anyway, we recorded it all in one take. We did the two one take. That was it. Morgan was like saying, that's it. You don't need to do another version. And we just did the backgrounds. And then we had it. And, and Tony was the same. So um, they then took that and put it on an acetate and took it through all the clubs and they worked and tweaked it and pushed up the bass and stuff and uh, heightened the vocal and everything like that. And people, because it, it was very hypnotic, 
it had uh, an element of jazz, it had an element of funk, there was even a, a, an aesthetic of reggae in the feel, in a sense as well, in the, in the bass and the heaviness. Um, and a class with the sense and the, and the difference of vocal tones and everything. Um, it embraced the DJs because we're just coming out of disco. There was a funk thing coming up, but it was not one, it wasn't 120, 130 BPM now. It was coming down to 115, 110, 109, those kind of tracks, but they still had a, a beat, a groove to it. So we were coming right back to that kind of funk feel that they had in the early 70s, but now in the 80s. And, um, you know, and then um, it all started. It basically, we started to do all the clubs, went out to all the different clubs. And then midway, um, they were asking me, well, what do you want to do? Are you going to be a solo artist or a group? So I said, all right, well, we, we probably let's try and do something like Police in the look. So I'd auditioned with another band called Midnight Express and Errol Kennedy was the drummer. So I liked how he played because he, he listened to how I was singing, how I was moving. Because with me, when I'm on stage, um, it's very important that the drummer is aware of my body movements. Because if I'm dancing, if I'm doing a certain thing, whatever, it's all interlinked. So the bass, the drums, the keyboard, everybody's looking at, because I'm doing certain accents and stuff like that. So it's so important. And movements, you know, the body has a lot, you know, can express a lot when you're talking music. You have to really be into it. And a lot of people don't realize this. So he was really good at that. Um, understand, it's a jazz thing as well, because I love jazz. So we got him on board. Body Talk was going through all the different clubs everywhere. Um, number one, every R&B chart, soul chart, and decided to do interviews and everything like that. And um, walking down Tottenham High Road one day, um, somebody from the house I was sharing, because I'd left home by this time, because I thought, well, it's time to be the musician, be on your own, said, you've got a phone call at home. The record company's trying to get hold of you. Where are you? Where are you? This is pre-mobile. So I phoned them and they said, um, oh, we're number 44 in the chart. I said, oh, fantastic. Oh, great. Oh, and I just thought, well, that would be it. Because at those times, it didn't push black British music at all. They would come in and come out. And that was it. Two records, boom. And um, so I thought, okay, cool. That's good. And then next day, I got a call saying, you may be on top of the pops because the group has fallen out. So I think, you know, be prepared. So... Um, I thought, okay, I thought nothing of it. I thought, then I got another phone call saying, Lee, where are you? You're supposed to be here at the company. So us to, so to, us to discuss what we're going to do for Top of the Pop. I said, you said you may be on Top of the Pop. You didn't say we were on it. He said, yes, you are on it. So everything went crazy. Cabs, organizing what we're going to look like, the whole concept, you know, this Arabic sort of, uh, you know, ethereal sort of look with a theatrical sensibility, but still being kind of show business. But... Um, and then Morgan was very crucial to <clears throat> saying, you've got three minutes on TV, you've really got to push it. You've got to let people remember you. You can't be the four tops or, you know, those groups that stand and do nothing. People have to be talking about you the next day. So on my shoulders, I had all this weight. And at the same time, I'm on the show that as a kid, as families, we'd all be watching. We'd be sitting in front of TV, watching it, dreaming that we'd be on this show because it was the mainstay of, of, of British TV on a Thursday night or Wednesday night. Yeah, Thursday night. Thursday night yeah. yeah, and um, the rehearsals, uh, and that, that, I think um, 
what you said previously about when you work and work and work and work and work and, and, and you, you're, you're rehearsing life and the moment where we went over the pops had been part of that whole rehearsal. So by the time I actually got to perform that, I was re- very prepared. I knew I had to be in a certain frame of mind, a certain discipline, because we had to repeat things over and over and over for the cameras, for this, for that, you know, and I had to be reduplicating everything. So, you know, I had to be really professional and tight in what I was doing each time. Um, and as I said, there's a lot of discipline. And then finally, the final filming session was in the evening. And that was like remarkable. It was, is that my cat? Oh, my cat's trying to get in. Hold on one second. Yep. Hold on one second. Skippy? Yeah, it is you. Come on. Come on. Come on. He's, he had an, he, um, he's, um, had a, a societist. Oh, so, no. Yes, didn't you? Yes, didn't you? So he's got a little, you can see here. All oh, right. It should be, it should be gold lame, really. Though. I know. <laughs> that was in the 80s. To the story. That was in the 80s. That, I mean, one of the, 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 one of the most uh, remarkable things is that, and what you're saying is that that moment, because it was so, exciting in lots of different ways from this visual mm. you know amazing look which you all had to to the music and to mm. also you know the, the type of song it was was so original it just felt so original at that time and um and i think it was that that combination was what exploded you in mm. in, in terms of that moment of success how did that moment of success change your life and was it everything that everyone dreams of because a lot of artists go you know when i'm famous my life's going to be okay Mm, mm, mm. was it that or is it more complicated ah it's a bit of both because you know we still you know like um and someone was telling me about this the other day they were saying okay you know we were broke we didn't have any money da 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 and at this point in time i was surviving because you know i literally was in three or four bands so even though i did top of the pop i always had this realistic thing that how am i going to maintain how i'm going to keep myself together to the point where even though we'd done it because you know the next day and everything you know i was thinking well i may have to go back and sign on the dole you know because i hadn't signed on the dole throughout my my period of, of 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 grafting only six months prior to that, a friend of mine said, why don't you sign on the dole? You can get some money. And I thought, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I said, because you're not earning. And um, the record company said, no, no, no. So we need to put you on a, 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 a wage or whatever like that. So you, you, can, you know, can keep things going. But the life changed. It, it changed to a level where from 1981 till 1989, I'd even say, it was work nonstop. It was work. It was really, it was like, it was all about the work. Again, all, it was work, 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 and, and writing and creating. And um, at that point in time, if you were in the newspapers, you sold records. So, you know, they put ridiculous things in the, in the newspapers and stuff. And that was basically to sell records. Um, and even if you didn't want to do it, you'd have a press person or somebody who'd make something up or whatever to sell records. I mean, now it doesn't make any difference, but that was what was part of the the game. And also, um, 
we became pillars in the community because there was all of a sudden everybody thought we were American to start with. Then gradually throughout, as the year was ending, we had our third hit single flashback. Everyone's thinking they're from the UK. And then that's when the, 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 the press starts saying, oh, you know, they're very camp, they're very this, they're the other. You know, the media, they, they want to try and pull, pull you down. While if they see Funkadelic or Parliament or even Earth Wind & Fire, they're not going to say the same situation. While we then started to do shows with Earth Wind & Fire and Kuluna Gang, who are, you know, saying, bigging us up and saying, wow, you know, like, you guys are really hot, we love what you do, blah, 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 blah. And they were from America. While in the UK, the media, not the audience, which is a different situation. The media starts to write, and they do that with everyone. They do that with every, you're, you're you know, having it for a while. It's, it's an English situation. They, they, they want to put you down, but then they still want to own you if you're doing well elsewhere. Yeah. And um, I didn't really dance the tune of what they wanted me to do. I was always rebelling. I was always, you know, with the record company, I was rebelling. I just thought we didn't have enough budget. You know, and we didn't. We didn't have the budget that we should have had for certain things. Um, and it was a fight, um, you know. And I would say, why are you guys so cheap? And they hated me saying that. So you're so cheap. We should be getting, you know, we've, we've done this, we've done that, we've done this. You know, because they'll build you up in one set, sense, but then they're trying to pull you down in another. So um, it was a lot of life lessons, a lot of life lessons. But I didn't leave the situation with bitterness. I came in with what I left in, which was, the talent God gave me and also be able to still continue doing what I wanted to do, which some people unfortunately didn't. I didn't get into the drug scene. I wasn't into that kind of situation. We'd go out and get pissed and get drunk at the limelight later on in, you know, the clubs, but we were not, I didn't come from that body of people who, you know, they always had my back. They we weren't into like, oh, let's, should we get out of it? And, you know, plus in the early, early seventies, when I was a kid, and I'd seen things like Lady Sings the Blues, I started to read all these biographies of all these different artists, especially, and these are black artists, and how a lot of them had descended. And, and it stayed in my mind. It stayed in my mind. I said, I don't want to end up like that, you know? And I'd say, if, if I got pissed or something one night, I'd say, oh my God, I'm having a Billy Holiday moment or something, you know, this is, no, we, this can't be like that. You know, I've got to make sure the next day I'm together, you know? So I always had this little third eye speaking to me you know and stuff like that do you think i mean i want to just mention drive again because i think it sort of fits into everything i want to say here if i think about my own drive and mm. i'm a writer today and i was an mtv presenter and i my drive i think came from the fact that okay the 70s and 80s were shit if you were black if you were gay, if you were a woman, you know, there was misogyny, there was racism, there was homophobia, it was everywhere, you know what mm, I mean? Mm, now, mm. I don't want to compare myself as a, uh, as a white gay man to mm. a black man, because there isn't a comparison, but there is a comparison in one sense, I think, and that mm. is that um, I felt very outside the society when I was growing mm. up, because, because of my sexuality, that I wasn't mm part of the mainstream and I didn't have those symbols that you were saying as well I didn't have that mirror mm. and if the mirrors that I had were like these those old very camp queenie comedians that I didn't see myself as you know <laughs> exactly. way, yeah. but it's not you know what I was sort of thing or what I felt I was and so I think when I on a, when, and when I started with MTV MTV said we need to talk about whether you can be gay mm. 
you know, and this is MTV in 1987. Yeah. And the whole of the 80s was a bit shit in that way. And I remember having a a black boyfriend and we could never get a cab if we stood together. So we used Mm. to have this technique where he'd hide around the corner and I'd get a taxi. So we'd get Mm. And Mm. that's when Mm. I thought, Mm. shit, you know, I thought it was hard to be gay. It wouldn't stop. A lot harder being black. I mean, and, and I think, you know, what you had to go through and achieve must have been an immense drive and a responsibility in a way. You feel Totally, totally. So I, th- I tell you, um, one of the things I was talking to my mate Leroy Logan, who's um, um, portrayed in the Steve McQueen Small Act series and Tyrone Huntley portrays me, which is interesting, which is really, I, I didn't think that anyone, I'd reached this age where someone's actually portraying me, which was uh, a, a thrill. But, I was talking, we're talking and said, don't you remember those days when the black Mariah would be driving down the road and they would stop you and st- stop and search. Now I used to be doing those gigs in Brixton and I'd come on the Victoria line to, to Stroud Green Road at Finsbury Park, get out, walk up and be stopped seven, eight, nine times to the point where they knew where they knew it was me. Oh, I was him again because he has his little plastic bag, and I, I, I remember I had this plastic bag was which said P A K Butchers, Pack Butchers, and I had this cassette tape always in it with all my tapes and my music sheets and everything. And they said, oh, I was him again. All right, get in, and they take me home to the top of the end of my road. But then there were other times when I had to dodge in and out of streets. If you saw them, you you hid and then you moved out, and it was like. You, it was a fear because you thought, oh, my God, they'll stop me, that, you know, throw me in, the, in the, wherever. So you had that. Then you had a situation is like when we were going out to the club scenes um, and like my mate Leroy was driving, we'd get stopped or we'd be watching to make sure police is going past us. But they would just stop us, you know. Um, is and it wider racism that that music of that era and this is what you're doing with with flashback, the movie, mm, you know, yeah. the, the music of that era. Uh, wasn't wasn't at the time given enough respect and no, airtime no. because no. it was black music. Yeah, and that actually, you know, I can imagine one of the reasons that you want to do this documentary is is to say, hang on a minute, I, this is, you know, like when people, they talk about today, oh, you know, if you're gay, you want to rewrite history. If you're black, you want to rewrite history. No, we want to tell the stories that were real and they well, should be told. Do you know well, what I, I, mean? I, I I'm I didn't even need the BLM or any other group to rewrite this. I've been working on this for over a decade. So the situation I started this in 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 um, twenty whatever it was, and um, it was initially my co-producer who's French was wanted to do an imagination documentary, and I I was kind of like ooing and ahhing and I said okay let's try it but I want to co-produce it and direct it and be part of the whole thing so he said yes whatever you want so we worked out a deal and then I started to interview people and then I said then I stopped and I said let me get somebody else to do the interviews to start with so we get a, a fresh outlook um so we interviewed a few different people blah 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 and then I started to listen to, and when I was in the studio listen to all these different stories and I thought, this is bigger than imagination. This is more. This, I said, some of these stories will never, ever be told. Or you, no one will ever get to hear it if we don't widen this whole situation here and let people know where it comes from, where it happens. And, but also in a positive note, not in a negative note. So then I said, right, 
let's change the whole thing. I want to do about black music, black, uh, British black music. And um, my co-producer was like, oh, okay. It's a, you know, okay, cool. So he thought, oh, we just do a little bit of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And that's what everybody thought. But in my mind, I thought, no, we have to reach back and we have to reach forward. And somebody said to me, uh, a director, a producer said to me, it's going to take you eight, nine years. And I said, no, you're joking. No, no, no. He said, it will. He said, there's, there's all these different hurdles that you have to get through. And, um, and then you're going to stop. And then you're going to start again. And then, um, and he was right, because trying to get certain interviews with certain artists, they weren't always available. Um, some people had success and then they didn't have success anymore. So all of a sudden they wanted to do an interview with you. Um, what what were the surprising funny. stories that you were told, things that shocked you? Could you give me one example of something where you just went, oh my God, you know, that's, that's amazing. It wasn't, it, was, it wasn't really that it was shocking because I, I knew I've, I've been on the road all my life. So, you know, since a kid. So it wasn't, I couldn't really say that anything was so shocking. What, there were wonderful stories, you know. I mean, Hélène Delmar, who's a jazz singer, whose father um, was working with um, Snake Hitch Johnson in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, he basically um, survived a bombing. The whole band he was in all died except him. And that was Café de Paris. So Snake Hitch Johnson's died, everybody else died, but he survived it and uh, then formed his own band. Uh, and uh, she tells some wonderful stories. So those are interesting. Lavi Sifri, who never does interviews, um, uh, extraordinary um, musician and, and, and person. Eddie Grant, who I interviewed, who I knew as a kid, you know, um, he told me they made it in Germany first because there was the outlet, you know, when they were in the, when he was in the Eagles of Baby Come Back before it came, you know, before it actually come out, came, um, became a hit over in the UK, Britain following yet again. You know, it's, it's, there was so many stories. Of, I mean, I've interviewed people from sound systems to DJs, pirate radio, people of, um, um, from the classical field. We've got, that's where, how far I went back to the early days of classical music. Um, Nadine, Nadine, is it Nadine Thompson, Thompson, I think. Uh, no, Shirley Thompson is a classical conductor a female black conductor who's done some fantastic arrangements. Um, and she introduced me to a world I didn't even realize existed of classical black composers, uh, which we've now put in the, in the documentary. Um, to the point where, you know, we, we, we got into grime and dubstep, which is uh, all derivative of, of reggae and of the UK reggae scene of Lovers Rock. But then also we have the Brit funk scene and the club scene. And then, you know, we had the acid scene, you know, the house scene. Um, there's so many, you know, the acid jazz people, you know, I interviewed. I literally went through that period of talking about Normski when he had his show because it was derived from, they saw MTV and thought, wow, we, we have to change our, our, our look on TV, to interviewing one of the Cleopatras, first black young group to have a, a cartoony sort of show. Um, so I've had some extremely diverse people and um we're nearly to the point of now finishing it um but it's, it's interesting because you talk about this and it and it's an it's again the expansion of musical horizons isn't totally. it i mean you're going it's almost like 
your very young youth in New York. It's, yeah. it's again, you're suddenly, dis it's, well, let's say rediscovering. You've probably known most of it, but you're rediscovering and maybe discovering something new there as well. Is it, mm -hmm. has it always, has it helped you, led you to new musical styles that you want to experiment in yourself? Oh, because yes. I know like you've done a, this jazz album, your, your voice is so beautiful on that album. I mean, it's just fantastic. <laughs> Um, I'm and, proud of that album. I'm very, very. I'm more proud of that album than I am of the Imagination albums, because um, one, I had control. Not saying I didn't have control with the Imagination albums. I did because I was writing all of the all of the, the songs uh, along with Steve and Tony. But with this album, it was like jumping into the pool. And Stefan Parolo, who is um, my co-producer of the making of DVD, because he said. Ali, if you want to do this album, you have to do a DVD, a making of, because this is going to be the future. I said, no, what, what making of? This was like 2004. And he says, yes, check this out. And he sort of showed me, because in France, where I'm very huge, and France has led me to Africa, South America. France is a huge territory. It's much bigger than the UK. And there's a lot of diversity. And, I, and creativity, and I found that you, I can do so many different things. So when I come back here, I'm kind of like a snob in the UK because I'm kind of like, well, you know, I'm like, I've got a song coming out with Classic Bertrand in Belgium soon. I've got a track with uh, Jorge Vasilo from Brazil in the end of the year. I've just done the Gorillas. So I've, you know, it, it, but it's because I've done other things that are accessible. And like Damon, he loved some of the stuff I did in France. So, and he knows it because he is me here. They play me every day. But when I did the jazz album, it was like um, I was going to jump into the ocean from a high cliff. And what I had to do <clears throat> was go back to that little boy in 1974, was listening to Lady Sings the Blues and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan's album where she sang My Funny Valentine. And then I thought, let me rediscover all of this. How can I do this? So I watched... Um, there's a video, Story of Jazz, it was a box set, and I just, it engulfed everything. Um, and it, it started with, you know, Bessie Smith and Robert um, Johnson, and up to the day, up, up to the, the, the bebop area, to, to, to Miles Jack Davis, to Herbie, all the way up to, um, to today. And I just listened to it and threw it all away. And they said, right, now what do you want to do? And so therefore I had a selection of songs that I had and I basically changed some of them into a jazz mode. Some of them had a bit of a R&B sensibility about it, but I wanted, to, I wanted to, to have that natural feel. So for example, um, there's a track called You Never Know and Thin Line where uh, I was listening to Erica Badu and their, her interpretation of stuff. And I said, I like the way she's lyrically saying the story. So I thought, I can do something like that. You know, you get up with an angry head, the same as when you went to bed. Was it, um, my, my brain can't think now. But it, it basically, it's a, you're selling a story like you're talking to somebody, but I love that idea. It's, it had a different poetic reference. So it gave me a different chance creatively. So I did that. And then even to the point where <clears throat> I, I always loved Strange Fruit, the Billie Holiday song, but I wanted to do my own version and one thing that I remember dipping back into my past again and bringing it forward was 
years, years, years ago as a kid on black and white TV. And I knew I'd heard it and seen it, but didn't realize who it was. And I found out, I remember seeing this woman singing it, not Billie Holiday, in black and white TV. And it stunned me. And it was uh, Cleo Lane. And it stayed with my mind. And I just loved just the way she formed her own words and phonetically and so on. So I just thought, that's what I must do for my own way, my own intonations, my own feel of it. And um, it went on from there. The, uh, the, the uh, tracks like Jazzmatazz, where I harmonized and things like that, it took me back to the bebop era and all that kind of stuff where I loved all that kind of sound. Um, I got that chance to exhibit different sides of what I could do. And I had lots of success in France and other areas. In the UK, there was a controversy because of the person that was on, the, a certain person that was on the same label as me. And uh, they don't push black jazz singers in the UK. That was, that's, the, you know, someone like myself. And then there were some people, oh, you've done a jazz album. Oh, how dare you? You know, it's like, are you doing an imagination jazz, singing imagination jazz songs? And, trying to box me and I'm thinking no you know I'm kicking out then it was very hard because there were some agents that thought well you know I'll book his imagination but I'm not sure I'm gonna book you as a jazz then I had other people said well I'm gonna take you on you know I love what you're doing come on and I developed a completely new audience um who now weren't probably into imagination but they're now into me doing the jazz so now when I do my shows I get both because I can merge the two. But it was a, it was a fight and a, and a battle. And it, it, it's a situation of why can't I be diverse and do different things? And then this is the same situation when I in, was interviewing different artists, the same thing they went through. And some of them had to go into acting, had to do, um, you know, for example, um, Nadia Katouche. Nadia Katouche, I don't know if you know who she is. Mm -hmm. Nadia Katouche was like a folk singer in the 60s. And she... Um, came around the same time as Cleo Lane and she was singing at that time. And I knew the name, my mother know, knew the name and um, Madeline Bell knew who she was. Um, but it turned out she was the, the uh, mother of Mike Lindup from Level 42, the only black member in the group, you know. So um, it was interesting to hear her journey, but I couldn't put all of that in the film. The problem we have in flashback, there's so much stuff that you can only talk of a genre and pick one person from that genre and then move on. Otherwise you're there for 18 hours. So, you know, so in, in doing that and then also um, having the experience of filming myself for the jazz album, it gave me, all of a sudden I became a film director and then I went on to do, um, I did three documentaries for SOS Children, one in Zambia, one in Tunisia, one in um, South Africa. You also uh, released a book, didn't you? With, 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 I did, I did. I did. haven't got it here. Yeah, I did. I've ordered something. it. It hasn't come yet from Within the Heart. Within <laughs> the Heart. Thank you. Thank you. All the money goes to the charity. All the money goes to the charity. You know, let me know. Email what me. What does it give you? Me. What does it give you doing something for charity? Do you know what I mean? Because there's always, there's, oh, I don't no. mean you, you don't, do that to get something. But mm. whenever you do something which is, you know, of value to other people, mm. there's mm. something, you get a sort of payback, don't you? So I just wonder what- Well, what you, it could, you know, the world is funny how we are born. 
And I, the first thing I thought, I could be in that person's place. It could be me there. Could you imagine? It could be me there suffering, having that suffering. So why wouldn't I? That's the first thing I think. I, you know. And the second thing is I, I always think I've been blessed and gifted that I can travel and through the music is brought me to help these people. So it's, and it's easy for me to do. It's not a problem to do it. So I think if I get the opportunity and the chance, I jump on it. So when I'm doing certain shows, for example, we went to Brazil a few years back and I managed to go to SOS Fair and heightened the fact that I am an ambassador for SOS. So that for that raised money, we went to, to uh, Mozambique in um, February last year just before lockdown, the same thing. Um, the promoter didn't realize how strong I was with SOS. And so what happened was the press and the TV all followed me to this village with the kids. And I said, right, okay, you're doing all this, let's raise some money, you know, because, and, and um, it, 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 it makes your heart, it, it's good for your heart to, to, to do something like this. But I, I do it because of my feeling. And um, I, you know, and that I've been lucky and blessed that I can do it, and and so when I get the chance, if I can, I can, you know, and and and, and that's it. It's and and filming it gave me um, seeing the environments that these kids were in, especially in Zambia when we went. We did the whole thing. It's online. I don't know if you've seen it. The SOS children in Zambia. It's on YouTube, and you can see the journey we went. I took my my band on this funny bus that we were on. And you see other people, how they grow up in their different environments. And, um, and uh, you know, it, it, it touches my spirit. The house mothers that look after all these kids and everybody that volunteers their time and energy, their strengths and their faith, how they devoted they are to doing it. Um, and that inspires me. That gives me an injection. It's like, wow, they really, you know, do it. And, and, it, it's a separate, it separates you from this, this world that we're in because there's so much frivolity, there's reality television and people who are, you know, they're, in, they're into needy, needy, you know, me, 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 me. And then you, you, you see that, which is a complete different side of it. And it brings you back to a sense of reality. And I'm, I'm just a person that's doing my thing. I get on the train and I'm, you know, like I was saying to Archie the other day, my manager, I was saying, Right, we're on a new train now. The old train's left at the station because, you know, th that was pre-COVID. Now we're on a new, new, new train. And we just have to keep being as positive and uplifting as we can, even though it's really hard. And my career hasn't just been ups and downs and, ooh, and music and lights. There's been tips. You know, there's been my manager died in the early 90s, which was very devastating. Um, and uh, other people that were part of my, my, my life passed away as well. Um, and it was, you know, there were certain points. So now we're in the COVID period. It, it reminded me, and I've talked to this to some people, it reminded me, and it's not the same, when the AIDS pandemic first started, because people were comparing the AIDS pandemic to, no, I was comparing the AIDS pandemic to this period, because I was saying, you've got people that were very ignorant about AIDS, then you've got people that are ignorant about taking the injection. You know, you had people telling people, look, this is, what's happening you need to know you've got people telling people this is what's happening to know and 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 it's it's the combustion yet they will go out and do that they will go out and do that here as well in the both periods of time and um and you you see how the governments are now all worrying you know and and it's because people don't listen they don't think ahead of time um 
And they're not all for the people. It's all about money. They're thinking, okay, we give an injection and uh, we're not getting any money from it. Then why are we giving it away for free? You know, things like that. So all of a sudden you become, you, even if you didn't want to become politically aware, you are part of the, polit the, the, the politics, so to speak. Um, and I think that was, that, you know, my point about the eighties and the seventies that you had, you, if particularly, if you were in some form of minority, you were, you had to become political because you had no choice. Yeah, it's like yeah, part yeah. of being in your blood. Uh, what I want to end with, which you, you said, I, I presume you live somewhere around Turnpike Lane. <laughs> you were mentioning Turnpike Lane. Do you still live around? Oh, no, or no, no. You no, lived no. There before? Was, no, basically, oh God, I lived in North London. I lived in Finsbury Park. And um, then we lived in Hornsey. And then when I thought, right, body talk's breaking. I'm going to be a big star. Wow, you know, I'm going to live on my own. And my mom said, let me live on your own. I said, yeah, I need to. So a friend of mine said, oh, we got a... Um, We've got a room in the house, some school friends who um, bought a house and another friend was a designer. Um, he just actually designed some of the imagination stuff. And he said, oh, you know, um, Abby, a friend of ours, got a room, you know, come there. So that was in uh, near the Tottenham football grounds. Right. And so um, I lived there for a while and then I ended up living in Hendon, which was completely different, you know. So, um, but North London has, uh, has always been... I say my base in a sense, though I'm in Northwest London now. Yeah, when I moved to London, I moved to Dongola Road, which is off West Green Lane. West Green Road, West Green Road. Yeah. yeah, and uh, mm. so so I know that area quite quite well. There used um, to be the West Green Road Community Centre around there. But yeah. my mum, my mum. Oh, you said I talk, when you mentioned Turnpike Lane, my mum's community centre, the Afro Caribbean Centre, is near Turnpike Lane. It's right near there. And uh, right now it's in disrepair. They're, they're helping raising money to, um, well, the, the, the council's supposed to fix it up because uh, it's a hub for the community. You know, it's been there for so long, but there's a lot of politics with the stuff, stuff going on. And as, as Sir rightly said, when we were, um, and actually when I was speaking to Leon yesterday, my friend Leon, who's doing his thing about the dancing, it, it was a fight. It was always a fight. Even when we were doing TV, promoting people we made it look like it was fun it was love we're having a great time but i was watching um live at the dominion you can go on youtube it's going to be there for a while but it's going to go and our first live tour we sold out seven nights and actually we've got an award so we're there seven nights um eight shows at the dominion theater in london no british black band had done anything like that none even today, I don't even I don't see anyone like that, you know. But no one knew, no one made anything about it. It was like, oh, okay. But it was a big deal, and we did it twice. And um, I was watching the performance because a keyboard player the other day was saying he hadn't seen it. I said, oh, go online, da da da. So I said, you know what? I'm going to watch this because we're doing a 40th anniversary album, which is coming out next year. It's going to be like uh, 14 albums three or four of them with unreleased stuff, some live stuff, some rule. It's going to be really, really cool. And some shows that we're going to put in. And um, so I was listening to all these different tracks and stuff I hadn't listened to for years. So as I was doing this, I just clicked on to YouTube to watch this Dominion Theatre and watch myself. And then I was surprised that myself, seeing myself there, I thought, oh my God, wow. 
And I then I was speaking to Mel Gaynor from Simple Minds, who's been drumming for us for a long time. And he said to me, you know, I loved it. I loved that show, Neil. And I, I said to him, I was so serious. I was very serious. I had to get it right. Even I'm singing the sexy songs and the, I was sick all the way through. I'm serious. I'm laughing at a few little bits and pieces, but because I knew the camera was there and everything, I had to be serious. I had to be strong. I had to be tough. I had to be on it. And, um, and then I watched another episode, which is completely different, uh, maybe a year later. We're in Los Angeles and we're on so the, 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 the program called Soul Train, which is presented by Don Cornelius. And Marvin Gaye was on the same show. And basically Don Cornelius says something like, this is the man that gives, this is the group that Marvin Gaye gives his stamp of approval. And I thought, wow. And then when I watched my performance, we did changes and we did just an illusion. And when, when I'm watching my performance, my shoulders are out here. And I'm like, on your march, get set, go, bam. There again, that face is serious, is strong. And by the time we finish the routine, I'm like out of breath. But it's so serious and it's so strong. I thought, you know, that's probably how I look back at myself. I think, you know, you, you had a lot on your shoulders. You had to really maintain. So you could, even though it looked like we're joking and having fun, we were and having fun and laughing and stuff. It was serious. It was, it was always like, it was work. It was like, get it right, make sure you're on point. And that's what I see in the Dominion. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was like, it wasn't, I mean, what I just finally like to say, because I think what's really fascinating is that you've, you've, you had sort of one massive career that opened into so many. Mm. Um, and it opened up so many uh, avenues in your, in your life. And I think that's really fascinating. You're not someone who's like looking back at a high point and that was it. You're someone oh, who's had the high point and it's carried on in different ways. Oh, because God. the most important thing as a human is to keep, developing and creating and that's what you've done and it I really is. appreciate it. It is. I mean, well, thank yeah, you. I had thank you. I mean I've had some really good high points and you know I still get excited. You know, the gorillas, you know, has a, was a number one on iTunes, the track I did, the Lost Chord. Um in every decade I've always had something. You know, I had number two in, in the nineties with the Mighty Power of Love. That was with Muta Swing, with I introduced. We had a number one with Instinctual, which introduced David Morales. Um, I did something with, um, and what's the name again, DJ Fantasy, which was uh, Mind, Body and Soul, big UK garage record. Then um, they're always something, the DJs always love me. They always want me to do something. So it's fun and it re-innovates. So I think in doing that, so I, I, it's, it's fun to do it as long as you enjoy it. And as long as there's a little bit of melody going on with the beats, then I'm happy, you know, so, and harmony. And that's it for this full-length interview with Lee John. I'll see you next Thursday for Throwback Thursdays and every Monday for a new podcast interview. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.